Welcome to Behavior Babes Podcast, presented by me, Dr. Amanda Kelly. Aloha, joining us today, we have Dr. Antonio Harrison. Hi, Antonio, are you there? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for joining me today. No, I'm excited to uh, be on your show. I I feel like I haven't seen you in forever, and every time I hang out with you, we have a lot of fun, so it's it's nice to even catch up before we jump on to record this. Yes, um, I think you know, my, one of my fondest memories of uh, our interactions and time together was when I tried to recruit you to come to Hawaii. I'm like, come to Hawaii. Like, do you, do you want to, like, what do you do? Do you, are you in behavior analysis? And you're like, oh, and Dr. Barry was like, Amanda, do you know who that is? <laughs> and I was like, well, it's someone I obviously want to be around and spend time with, so they should come here. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, I was humbled. Uh, <laughs> to be in your uh, it, was a, it was a good time. It was a good time. <laughs> well, I mean, I think your contribution and having, uh, you know, uh, so many diverse people, I think, practicing in our field, they're out there. we got to find them. I think is what can make any field really great and what was really eye-opening. And there was some parts that I found really heartbreaking when – I read um, your open letter to behavior analysis and um, I thought it was really thought provoking and I wanted to have you come and talk to the audience today kind of about that. Um, So before we jump into all of of that, do you mind giving a a background of of who Dr. Antonio Harrison is (laughs) for our listeners? Sure. Yeah, no, um, uh, born and raised in Pasadena, California. I uh, went out and played some college ball at Grinnell, Iowa, at Grinnell College. Ended up having a really bad knee injury, which brought me home because I thought sports was going to be my thing. But that's what led me to find behavior analysis. I think at one point I was teaching second grade, you know, as a full-time teacher. I was working three nights a week graveyard shift at 24-hour fitness and then bouncing at a club on the weekends. And it wasn't for money. It was just because I didn't know what the hell to do with myself and so, you know, I reached out to an old professor and said, hey, you know, um, you've been my favorite professor. What do you think I should be doing if I were to go back to school? Because I always enjoyed it. And unbeknownst to me, he was a behavior analyst in the state of Iowa. Uh, and he said, check this out. And so that started my search. And then I hopped in a program and five years, three kids, and a marriage later, you know, I was a BCBAD. And uh, it's been an interesting ride, and I've taken some time away, but I'm also trying to make sure that I'm getting back in with the folks that I first fell in love with. There you go, connecting to the folks that we first fell in love with. Um, yeah. It's really important. It's really important. And I I just want to pause and acknowledge that you said five years, three kids, a marriage later. And yeah. One breath. <laughs> We're like it was an interest. It's been an interesting ride. Um, I think just a dissertation alone is an interesting ride. So, <laughs> well, you, you know what? You know what was cool about it though was it forced me to be on top of my shit. Like I finished with my dissertation and descended within the same month that I finished my final classes because I couldn't afford to go into dissertation maintenance or to prolong anything. Like there were you know, kids that had to be fed and diapers that needed to be changed, full-time job that was going on, coaching high school football, which I forgot to mention, I've done that for a decade. 
Um, so, like, I, I didn't have the time or the luxury to prolong any dissertation. So it actually kind of lit a fire under my ass to make sure that I kept moving. Well, and, you know, you mentioned right there some behavioral concepts, whether people are, are recognizing it or not. There's a lot of competing contingencies, and the motivation, mm-hmm. the MO was strong, right? Like, I don't have time to waste. I don't have money to spend. No. <laughs> I've got to allocate it over here to the mouths to be fed. <laughs> well, well, and, and I'm going to throw a disclaimer out there for anyone listening. So one of the things about me, if you kind of haven't figured it out yet, which uh, – should I call you Amanda or Dr. Kelly? What do you want her behavior babe here on this show? <laughs> Amanda is great. Or okay. Um, yeah, good, because I wasn't going to call you anything else. Um, <laughs> but I figured I'd ask. It's a nice <laughs> thing to do. Um, is, okay, yeah, I've, I have I earned a Ph.D. in our science. I'm a BCBAD. I had to learn all the definitions uh, of our science verbatim, you know, with uh, Hank Schlinger as my BV professor. I mean, I know all this stuff, Pat, but I talk like a normal human being. Um, and that's not to say that behavior analysts don't, but what I'm, what I'm saying is I translate for myself so that when I'm speaking in general, anyone who's listening can understand. And so if Amanda wants to translate as she just did, I love it. Thank you, because uh, I like both sides of those. But for me, I typically just speak, and uh, if we want to have a geeked-out conversation, we can do that. That's wonderful. I think when we're looking at uh, our science, I like to do a lot of pairing, pairing transfer stimulus control. Um, mm-hmm. No, you'll find me geek out on occasion. But the the wonderful thing is we can have conversations. And when we're hearing other people, that's that's a lot of that fluency, right, that we were trained right. to do by those wonderful mentors is like, we're, we're, we're tacking it. We're covertly doing it. It's all in our head. Really what we're saying is we're translating it for ourselves and we're putting it in language people understand. And right. Pat Freiman talks a lot about, you know, behavior ease, right, and being an ambassador of our science. And I think um, you're a really good model of that. So we're going to keep it real. <laughs> yes, we are, always. <laughs> so talk to us about or talk to me um, about the, the open letter to behavior analysis, kind of, where it came from, what the thoughts were. For anyone who hasn't read it, you know, we'll post the link for it as well. Um, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I've I've gone back and forth. I've stayed – the only way I've really kept my foot in the field consistently is teaching graduate school. And I, I teach it – I've taught it brick and mortar but also online. And it's it's been great. It's allowed me to pick my kids up from school, drop them off at school, go to all their events. Um, and also maintain my household. Uh, but other than that, there may be a few consulting jobs here or there, and I started to get to a point where I, there were still people that I really loved who were in the field, and there was a ton of work that I think we could definitely be doing, but I just felt like I had been feeling since I started, which was a bit of an outsider, and I had been doing a lot of writing at the time, and so I decided, you know what, this is a topic I think I should write about, whether it's to get people to read it or just for me to release some stuff on a piece of paper. Uh, I think it's necessary for me. And, you know, I took some poetic license and decided to write it from the angle of a of two separated lovers. And I just started talking in the letter about how when I came into this field, I was so excited. Everything made perfect sense to me. I loved learning about the science. I loved the application. However, no one was talking about anything besides the world of autism. 
And I decided, okay, well, I guess I'm going to dip my toes in there and see what this is all about. And I did. And I did some great work there and met some great families and some great kiddos and, and uh, adults. But it wasn't for me. You know, I, I would rather spend my time in the afternoon out in the sun yelling at kids who are running into themselves at full speed with helmets and shoulder pads on. Like, that's what I would rather do. Uh, but I didn't – there was no outlet for that. There really, really was no outlet for that. Um, so in writing this letter, I just started to share how I came in excited, and when I looked around, not only was there no outlet for the thing I liked, but then I also looked around, and in a familiar situation, there was no one who looked like me physically, um, which is a tough place to be. Explain for our listeners what, what like, can you, a little bit more about that. Like, what is, what do you mean there was no one who looked like you? I think. So, I mean, I'm, I am, um, I'm black and Italian. I'm full sleeve tattooed. I'm bald head. Uh, I'm a pretty muscular guy. Like I said, I played college football, so I can do somewhat of an intimidating presence. Plus, like, I'm kind of loud. Um, and just a little boisterous. And uh, <laughs> when I looked around, like, you know, um, our field, there were a lot of, at the top were a lot of old white men. And everything in between felt like it was a lot of younger, on-the-rise white women. And it was a situation, you know, I, I started in public school and education uh, in terms of when I went to school, and then I got switched to a very affluent private high school that was not predominantly, I'm talking all white. Um, but I would go home and cross the ravine and be in the hood. Like that's where I grew up. So it, it, it had that th same feeling where it was like, oh, this professional and this personal world, um, I feel like people aren't going to understand me. And then at the same time, I'm a student at that time who uh, was sitting on the ABAI Executive Council and that was during the time with Milton Berger and Fryman and the town hall in, in San Antonio where Ray fell on his sword for everybody and people still weren't happy. And then the next year, Fryman, you know, resigned for his own reasons, which I totally understand. Uh, it just seemed like things were crumbling. And I was in this, this world that didn't have anything for me, I felt like, with a bunch of people who didn't look like me, and it was crumbling all around. What the hell did I just decide to take on? you know, and pay all this loan money for. Um, and then now I, I had a PhD, a BCBAD, and I wasn't working in the world of autism, which made me essentially just an entrepreneur with a degree. Uh, and no one taught me entrepreneurial sk skills in graduate school. I had to learn those from the neighborhood. Um, so now I had to learn a whole new set of skills to, you know, make my livelihood. And that just felt tough. And the letter was a plea to come back to my lover saying, I miss you, the time we spent together, how much I loved you. Um, even though things aren't what I thought they were, maybe there's something I missed and maybe things have changed because I also didn't want to blame the field. Like, I didn't do my part either. I kept my ass in the background and didn't say much and just looked around and felt like an outsider instead of speaking up and taking, you know, taking the bull by the horns and taking charge to change things. Um, so uh, it, it was kind of a meet me halfway. I'm changed. You're changed. We're both older. Let's love each other again and see if this uh, marriage can work for a second time. 
it's really beautiful and poetic. And that's why I was also saying, you know, there were parts that were if maybe not heartbreaking, but really tugged on the heart. And I think it's because you connected. And for anybody who doesn't know what behavior babe looks like, I am maybe no longer that young, but a white woman, right? And <laughs> I'm connected to your statements. And I think that there's something to be said about the expectations and the evolution of a relationship. And for many of us, behavior analysis, it was, it is like so exciting and so compelling. And the science is just amazing with possibilities. Yeah. And, and where's our, where's our spark? But, you know, I got into my routines too, and I did my things. And, and some of that's led me to, you know, you sometimes create and carve your own path, but that's not without challenges and it sucks to do it alone. And, you know, I think that's the part that I connect with is some of it feels alone and some of it is a journey of growth of our own. Um, but I also well, found it, sorry, so so poetic when you were like, come back, come back, let's come back. Yeah, well, and then think about it too, like practically, like there was some huge resentment. I just spent all this money on grad school. I could go get a high five or low six-figure job as, uh, you know, a director or something like that and work my way up to pay this shit off and to live a better lifestyle, but I don't want to do that. So now I'm sitting here, you know, uh, going to places and telling people I'm Dr. Harrison. Um, when they look at me and the place I live or the way I'm dressed or the car that I drive, and be like, this doesn't add up. What we expected is not what's being shown to us. And, uh, and struggling throughout all of that, um, it, it made me resent things a little bit. Like, man, you know, w- what in the world did I get myself into? But, again, I until I started to take a look in the mirror myself, I'm like, well, what did you not do uh, to make this work? Um, you know, uh, things didn't change. And, and that's why I wrote that letter was more of a, a process to get something off my chest and to let some things go and also to admit some guilt and fault. Um, and the fact that I'm not where I want to be in life because I also didn't put forth the effort. Well, and that's a truly behavior analytic perspective, right? You're not just blaming the learner. No, you're, yeah. <laughs> you're, you're saying, where's my shared responsibility? And, I mean, with that, comes a, it, it comes a lot of weight, right, that we're constantly saying, what can we do, what can we change? But it's also okay to say, like, I'm not happy, like, I'm not happy, yeah. and I want to be in Very a place of happiness and joy. And I want to be helpful, and I want to be meaningful, and I want to be, you know, recognized as in uh, a sense of belonging, right? Like, recognized as in we're, we're all in this together. Um, it's very daunting when <laughs> we feel alone no matter well, what we're well, and, and the cool thing was, after I wrote it, I got a lot of people responding with support, and then also a lot of people telling me, like, Excuse me. Uh, a lot of people telling me, hey, this year when I went to ABAI, because I hadn't been in like four years, it just didn't seem for me a, a reason to go. Um, and they're saying, I looked around and saw a lot of individuals of color. There were a lot of people who looked like us. There are a lot of people who are out here trying to really, you know, scream diversity and change things. You might want to take a look. You might want to get yourself back out here and, and make yourself available. Uh, which was nice because I felt like it was my other half saying, okay, like I've changed too. We can, we can make an attempt here. And so that's what I've been doing is, is since that 
letter talking with different people, possibly setting up panels or talks or just having that conversation. And um, I'm just hoping that it, it – we use the skills within the science that we know to change the science as opposed to doing what most organizations do. And I, I know because I worked in admissions at a school where diversity was kind of my charge, uh, where we talk about it. We talk a good game, but when it comes down to it, not very many moves are made because people are scared of that change because they don't know what it looks like. Yeah. I mean, I think when I hear people say, let's talk about it, I have two thoughts, right? My first thought is, that's the beginning. That is behavior. Uh-huh. Language yeah. that I have, that you have, the conversation, other people's input, other people's perspectives, getting back out, seeing the environment, has it changed, what can can be done. That's incredible, but it's not enough. And no. so the second thought I have is, okay, good, right? We talk, we have conversations, panels, That that's actually, that's more too. That's more than a conversation. That's a conversation with a megaphone, you know, at least the people who are attending. And then how do we get those conversations? How do we get that access? How do we reach people who can't afford to be at the conferences? I mean, there's a lot of prohibitive things that could just be what you have in common if you already have a bunch of student loans, no matter where you live, (laughs) right, Right. Iowa or Kansas or Massachusetts or Hawaii. I mean, I I appreciate that you shared that you some of the responses. That was going to be one of my questions. And um, can you kind of delve a little bit more into some of the I'm sure there was some fear, but you took a big risk. And um, what has that response? Like what, what have been some of those reactions or discussions that have come since? Well, I mean, immediately there were just comments saying how much they understood where I was coming from or, or were thinking along the same lines or that I should speak up and say more and become a part of leading the charge or that there will always be a seat next to them at the table with them and, um, from there, that led to me also reaching out to some people. I, you know, saying, "Hey, I checked out your article. Or are you interested in talking about diversity?" And uh, some other folks um, just saying, "Hey, I, I, I know some people who have mentioned you. Would you be interested in talking about possibly coming and doing a presentation or a panel?" And you know, so there's nothing set in stone at the moment except for a conference in Boston in April. Um, where I'll be speaking, but other than that, right now it's just in conversation stage, and that's where I have to stop myself from reliving the past of, oh, this is what happens. We start having the conversation and putting things together, and then eventually it falls through because no one puts in the work, right? Um, but to to find a way to keep people moving, to keep them shaking, to keep, to keep wanting to do stuff, to uh, to have that motivation and say, no, I'm actually going to, you know, even though I've got job and family and everything else, I'm going to spend this extra time looking up this literature so that we can put together a panel and not for the sake of my own name and notoriety within the science, but for actually changing shit for the better. And being on a panel is showing here I am, here I here I am representing another group or, or individual who may not feel represented, whether that's somebody who lived in Iowa or someone who has the same, you know, skin color, who has a half sleeve or a full sleeve tattoo. I mean, you know, it is really interesting too, because not only has, I, I, I personally feel that there's a shift and um, growth and awareness and in discussion. And I think that that comes as a result of a lot of things, but it's not separate from what's 
going on in larger society, right? Like it, it feels all the more pressing to be talking about, you know, everyone's perspective here, but in saying like, you know, in ways that where I can't relate, the, the way I can be an ally is saying you you can sit right here, right next to me. You know, like here we right. are always like in this with you. Or if there's something you need from me, you have my number. Um, and and making that a valuable offer, not in not just some words again, right? Um, yeah. I I mean, well, so that that's what I say. Like being there is doing more than being there. And of course, um, not for your own notoriety. I think if that's what you were looking for, you could have taken all these other skills and have marketed yourself, right? It's right. more about about you saying, like, what do we all have to offer each other and how do we I, – I, what I'm hearing you say, at least, I'm sorry, I don't mean to speak for you, what I'm connecting with what you're saying is, like, this is a larger discussion and how do we create inclusivity and belonging and representation in the world if we cannot do it in a scientific, um, you know, approach that is here to improve the lives and human behavior and animal behavior, behavior. If we well, can I mean, do it, I mean, can. <laughs> no, we and and that's the thing. I like. I think about something so simple. The uh, a couple weeks ago, my starting quarterback for the high school that we coach, um, he's a black male. He had just been stopped by the police in a neighboring, extremely affluent, one of the most affluent in the nation uh, neighborhoods, held for 45 minutes as a minor without contacting his parents, and was stopped at gunpoint. And another coach to me. Another one of the coaches found out about it, and he came to me and just said, hey, would you go talk to him because I know you've dealt with something like this before. I never have. I have no idea what this is like. Um, And going to have that conversation with this young man, but after the conversation is done, all I'm thinking is with all the things that are happening with respect to police and unarmed black men or just police in general and interactions with the community – how has there not been a protocol created, at least that I don't know about, uh, by behavior analysts for police in dealing with tough situations or situations where they are not familiar with the community that they're dealing with? I mean, tiny things like that where we could re- really be of service, yet I just don't know if anyone's doing that or doing that on the scale at which we could be because we actually have the skills to do that effectively with our science. A couple of years ago, I started looking at sustainability initiatives, why I live on an island, so my environment, my culture, my community, right, it's here. But I also wanted to take all the skills that I learned about reinforcement, shaping, schedules, delivery, mm-hmm. all of that, and change something that was pressing in my community that wasn't my um, my job, right? And one of the right. things that thought about is like there's not funding for that so it's going to have to sometimes be either you create that funding or find that grant or or carve that path right have these conversations ask people for solutions and their ideas of course but um i started creating a group and finding like-minded individuals and i was like can we come together can we and it's you know that same sort of like trying to attract the same energy and say how do we then apply these skills to this issue um, and it was much more in a personal sense, a small group kind of thing. You know, I say small, 500 of us. Um, but it, it wasn't tens of thousands of people, right? It was, and I think, how do you get people to activate? And the larger you get, the harder that is. But Very true. the more you can kind of attract that energy, um, the more 
we can try to propel it forward. But there are so many barriers in the way, right? Like yeah. who's, who's funding this? What is the politics around it? So how have you – you're doing some really unique things with your skill set at this time. Um, right now, like how do you see behavior analysts individually or collectively as a field being able to carve those paths? What are the next steps? How do we get started? I'm sure you've thought Well, about I mean, I, I have. And honestly, I see some great – some great work being done. For instance, you've started a podcast. There's some other people who've got some like uh, YouTube channels and other podcasts going on. Um, the interesting thing, though, is I wonder there needs to be something that can t- contact the masses at a way that speaks to them with respect to what's important in their life with language that everyday people use and show actual effective outcomes with respect to what we can do, right? But that has to be put out. Why isn't – why have I never seen any kind of press coverage of our conference? Why have I never seen any kind of press coverage outside of anything where shit goes horribly wrong with respect to what we do or anything outside of Autism Awareness Month? Why? Right. Um, if 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 I'm if I'm able to do something, say, with uh, the high intensity interval training that we're doing and I'm recording individuals output of heartbeat per minute or beats per minute with respect to the BPMs that are being played with music. Can we get a higher rate of, of, of measuring you know, heart rate output with respect to the different beats per minute on a music song? How can that affect people's workouts? If I'm looking at talking to shaping, uh, correct form tackling, which I wrote an article on with Dr. Powell in 2013, you know, why, how can I get that in front of Roger Goodell, the NFL commissioner? How can I put that in front of his face? Right? Uh, that's, there needs to be an outlet where we're working together to be able to do those things. But if we're just stuck in a smaller world, whether it's within our academic world, our research world, or just within our world of autism, when do we ever branch out except for as individuals, right? And there's some people who are doing some great things that I've talked to who have got their own, you know, their own companies or they're trying to collaborate and move forward. Uh, but there's just not enough, and there's not enough of us disseminating in a way that connects with people who aren't behavior analysts. I mean, anyone who's gone to, and this is not to knock anyone who's given a symposium, a talk, or anything like that, but I would bet most people would say if those type of presentations, if those type of presentations were given to the general public, most of the people would turn around and walk out of the crowd. Because that's not what they're there for. They don't want. They, they don't necessarily care about how the science works. They don't want the electrician to tell them how all of the stuff works within the house intricately. They just want to be able to turn their damn lights on, right? And why aren't we turning on lights, right? I don't need to know how the plumbing goes underground. I just want to flush my toilet. It's backed up. Can you help with that, right? We don't need to tell them all of that other stuff. We need to just do what we can do effectively, and we're not doing that, in my opinion, and neither am I, um, which is why I'm doing more things like this podcast and hopefully talking at some things to get some people moving and mobilized. Getting people moving and mobilized, I think, is 
always the question, right? How do we activate the change? When you are talking about teaching, some some of the conversations I've had in like, how do we branch out? How do we extend? How do we, not only how do we get behavior analysts thinking along other lines uh, or, or emerging, you know, immer- immersing themselves, emerging with other scientific approaches, but how do we get environmentalists to learn about behavior analysis? How do we get, um, you know, kinesthesiologists to learn about behavior analysis? And a lot of that comes back to some of the discussions that people I've had have said at the graduate level or at the undergraduate level, can we start looking at embedding these courses? And then, of course, you get all the restrictions and the bureaucracy of what needs to be in a course sequence or what the university is willing to do or how many credits someone has to pay for. But I thought, what a really unique idea if even there was guest lectures where we're swapping or making friends in other departments. You mentioned doing um, some teaching throughout. Have you have you thought about or have you explored or um, any of those kinds of ways to reach other professions or to have other your students hear from other professionals? Uh, well, I guess the first part of what I do with that is flip it is when I teach um, I share with all of my students on the first day all the shit that I do that is not within the world of autism and let them know if they're interested in doing something outside of that, I'll work with you. I don't necessarily even care what it is. We'll, we'll figure it out or I'll find someone who will, um, which right now I'm, I'm advising someone's thesis and they're shaping uh, taiko dr- drumming, a, a Japanese style of drumming that originally started with samurai warriors to to lead people in battlefield, but which has now become a cultural drumming piece, right? Like, that's cool as hell. Like, why aren't we – but when I talk to people like, oh, yeah, no, I use this for football, people are baffled. They have no idea. It has become – for most folks who are not well-versed in behavior analysis, behavior analysis has become synonymous with autism treatment. That's what it is for everybody, right? Um and in terms of flipping that and getting other professions, anytime I get a chance to go and work with other coaches and show them what I'm doing, or when I work with clients one-on-one, because I work a lot with the idea of self-discipline, because that's part of my history as being an athlete is having to have this self-discipline or idea, right? So when I work with people on changing their habits and their behavior and we talk self-discipline, once I get them hooked and they see actual changes, uh, you know, at first I'll be like, so what are you a PhD of? And I'll say, oh, I'm a behavior scientist. And we just, I just work on the science of human behavior to help people change stuff. And But once we actually see some changes about, you know, their routines, their habits, that's when I'll start introducing them to the stuff that is behavior analysis and saying, well, it's actually kind of cool that this matches this. And, and then you get people saying, oh, well, do you do anything with respect to OBM? They don't say OBM, but, you know, do you help companies with their employees? Do you, you know, can this be done with, you know, working with dogs? Can this be done with, yeah, behavior is behavior, right? Um, that's what we study is behavior. So I may not be competent in that particular area, but I damn sure will know someone who is, right? And, and those, that's how those conversations happen. But those conversations need to be over a loudspeaker, over a, a social media channel, over a television channel, over whatever people are consuming to get their information nowadays. I'm not sure if you realize this, but I think you've solved this, the issue. Um, <laughs> no, you've presented, <laughs> you've presented a formula, though. And 
I want to kind of make a connection for you that I think that's how autism and behavior analysis became partnered together, right? People had a need. Someone came and helped them. It became more than an individual. People achieved the change. They wanted to know how you got the change. I mean, right? Like that, that's what, that's why it was so successful. I think it's wonderful sure. that behavior analysis is so well known for autism. I think that's fantastic. I just, yeah. or I'm glad autism is so connected to behavior analysis, but I wish, of course, and I want, of course, us to help the rest of the problems that not are just plaguing people in our communities, but ourselves, right? Like, well, what is it about this science if we cannot help ourselves, our situation, our environment, and, and the, the society around us? I mean. So you touch, you touch on something that's very important to me. One is I'm a huge, huge believer of the idea that, like, people need to fix their own shit before they can go out trying to help anybody else fix that stuff, their, you know, other stuff, right? Like, you got to be on point. It's not doesn't mean you're ever going to be perfect because you never will, but, like, you need to know what's going on with you. And there, for me right now, I think there's a huge opportunity for us within uh, the masses to share our science in a way that could be extremely effective. There's a huge craze right now of life coaches. There are people – who are going to get certificates from workshops and helping, you know, people, you know, trying to be life coaches at the age of 22 when it's like, what life have you lived to be a life coach? But that doesn't mean I won't listen to you. Maybe you have something poignant to say. Who knows? But, you know, um, we actually study the science of human behavior. So when I work with a lot of times when I work with clients, I'll be like, oh, so when you help people change their behavior, it's kind of like a life coach. And I get a little ticked off because I say, no, I'm not. I spent five years getting a Ph.D. in the science of human behavior. Like, I'm not a life coach. I'm a behavior scientist. Um, it's, it, it's more powerful to me than that, uh, than, than just, you know, a course that I took over a weekend or a course that I took for two weeks to be certified as a life coach or paid thousands of dollars under some um, former, you know, uh, or some millionaire who's, who's trickled down a bunch of books to everyone. Like, I can actually help you change your life and have it maintain and generalize in other areas. Because that's been always been my biggest thing with self-help and gurus and life coaches is they get you fired up, rah, rah, you got all this motivation, and then they send you out to the world without any methodology on how to carry this stuff out, right? How, I, how do I read this many books? How do I stay engaged with meditation? How do I make sure that I'm the best and most present I can be for my children or for my wife or for my husband? Um, how does all of that happen instead of just saying, that's what you need to do, now go do it, and then we leave these individuals up to themselves to try to figure out life, which is no one can do one, but is the first reason they came to in the first place is because they really can't figure out themselves at all and they need some help, right? So. With that bad right now, that is as big as it is, if behavior analysts started reaching out to helping people with their own individual lives with whatever it is that they want to change, not what we want them to change, what they want to change, and we translate whatever, I want to be more happy. All right, well, what the hell is this person really saying? So tell me, what does that look like for you? Like, when, what, what do you do that makes you happiest? Right, and we start to translate those things and help them bring that about in their life, we'd be a smash success because people, would, people wouldn't just be throwing out thousands of dollars to get a few, uh, you know, e-books or motivational tapes and then spend another thousand on someone else. 
because what we would do is help change something, teach them new skills to maintain and generalize over a long haul, and word of mouth would spread. Maybe that is a utopian idea for me, and maybe I'm not being realistic. But if it's effective, why wouldn't that be realistic? And there's the love for the science. <laughs> and there's right? People. There's Skinner's I Believe didn't know him, but the the idea that it can save the world. And, I mean, the world, myself included, um, needs a lot of saving right now. Um, I want to really uh, thank you for coming on the show today. I really appreciate the conversations, the difficult conversations. Um, It's easy to talk to you, but some of these things are hard to talk about. And um, I think the conversations are a really good start, and I'm glad to have been a a small part of that. And I'd love to invite you back on the show. I have so many more questions, and I want to talk to you about, like, your medicine and, and health and life and me, come help me. Uh, <laughs> yes, um, I will come down to Hawaii all day, every day. And and I right. Before, but before we hop off, and I thank you for having me on. Really, um, just to be able to have a voice and a platform, I do want to make this statement. I'm not perfect. My family's not perfect. Like I mess up shit all the time. I'm not always on point as a parent. I'm not always on point as a person. I'm not always just on point, period, right? Um, And I don't have all the answers, but I'm just trying to find ways for us to do something different. Uh, Because if we don't, um, we're going to lose a lot of good people. Um, Possibly I might leave that situation, but, I mean, it's just the point is there's so much we can do, and at this point I might as well start voicing my opinion and saying something instead of doing what I've been doing since 20. 2008, which is sitting in the background, uh, that those days are over. So I'll make a run for, you know, running my mouth, and we'll see how that works out. <laughs> and if it doesn't, then I'll figure something else out. Shit. Put your money where your mouth is. But also, right? <laughs> <laughs> you got to be a part of this too. But, but yeah, you know. But thank you for uh, inviting everyone to the table for the conversation. Um, I appreciate and, it. And I see a gap of conversational topic that's missing from my website, so I'm going to be reaching out to you for some support as well on that. Cool. Yeah. And with that, for anyone who has more um, questions or wants to learn more and get more information about these topics in applied behavior analysis, please check out www.behaviorbabe.com. An open letter to behavior analysis. Written by Dr. Antonio M. Harrison, BCBAD. Dear Behavior Analysis, This may be the scariest thing I've done with my career as a BCBAD. However, at this point in my personal and professional life, it is absolutely necessary if I'm to continue our marriage. This letter was born from an email soliciting my experience as a former ABAI Executive Council student representative. The sentiment has weighed heavy on my mind for years, each time I paid the exorbitant monthly due for my student loans and as the ABAI annual conference approaches, which I haven't attended in multiple years. As I ponder whether or not to rediscover my place within the field, it wasn't until a good friend, Dr. Ellie Kazemi, pointed out why I feel divorced from behavior analysis, yet currently only separated. Her words sparked the self-reflection needed to write this letter. I must set the stage in order for it to make any sense. In a phone conversation with Dr. Paul Govani, Polly Gloves, 
who was utilizing the science outside of the typical framework, he asked the important question, what got you into behavior analysis? I answered with full honesty, as I will share now. You see, I grew up in the Los Angeles area, and when the crack cocaine epidemic hit in the early 90s, it grabbed a hold of my father like a tornado sweeping through the Midwest. It destroyed everything in sight. My mother had the unfortunate burden of having to share exactly what was going on because she could no longer create imaginary excuses of why my dad was gone for three or four days at a time, why Christmas gifts came up missing, or why we had to visit him behind plexiglass in county jail. I was informed of his addiction at the age of 10. Once all was revealed, my dad no longer left home to use. Instead, he used in the home, resulting in paranoid behaviors such as hiding behind the living room curtains with a large butcher knife, peering out the window at the shadows that did not exist. My sister and I had to stomp around the house to let our presence be known in fear of becoming victim to a fatal stab wound. As you can imagine, these situations and environments got worse, and I was placed in situations I can only describe as sketch for the remainder of my childhood. It forced me to be hyper aware of my environment, knowing where the exit was placed, who were the unsavory characters, where my help may reside, and ready to fight at the drop of a hat. Observation of human beings became a survival tool. I had to become a quick judge of the function of behavior, antecedent stimuli, and assumption of motivating operations of others. I didn't know it, but I was being groomed to be a behavior analyst in those very moments. This shaped my behavior, transferring my multiply maintained function to one of automatic reinforcement. I came to enjoy people watching. This combined with being an athlete all my life, the only environment I could find solace, I was surrounded by the necessity to understand behavior. Fast forward to college and a gruesome football injury, I found myself searching for a career outside athletics, the only arena I knew for success and enjoyment. In conversation with my favorite undergrad professor, I was told of this thing called behavior analysis, and it simply made sense. I could finally learn the science behind why people do the things they do. The result? Graduate school, ABAI executive council student representative, publication and job on the effects of verbal instruction and in shaping to improve tackling by high school football players, Side note, I've been a high school football coach for over a decade now and use the science every day with my athletes. The joining of the health, sports, and fitness SIG. Presentations at ABAI, Calaba, and Fresno State. Yet, it was short-lived. Back to Dr. Kazemi's commentary mentioned at the onset of this letter. As ABAI Executive Council Student Representative, my friend and then graduate school department chair, Dr. Rachel Taylor, whom first suggested and supported my run for the position, instructed me to sit back and observe. I was to keep quiet and take in this opportunity that would last four years and wait my turn to speak up. If you know me, this is hard as hell to do. I am quiet for no one, but I heeded the advice of Dr. Taylor. I was in for the shock of a lifetime, professionally. I sat with the likes of Ray Miltenberger, Bill Hewitt, Timothy Vollmer, Sung Woo Kong, Travis Thompson, Janet Twyman, Mike Perrone, Dick Malott, Kurt Salzinger, Martha Hubner, Linda Parrott-Hayes, Pat Fryman, and of course the engine that drives it all, Maria Malat. Please forgive me if I forgot to mention any other names, mispronounced any. It was a long four years. These are the scientists whose work I read diligently all throughout graduate training. My shock was not one of an awestruck child who saw his favorite professional athlete, but rather the cringeworthy response of what was unfolding in front of my eyes. I came into the council at the time of the Alamo. If you don't know, youngsters, you better ask somebody. Conflict riddled our field from within, and it looked and felt as though we were ready for a civil war. 
I watched as Ray Miltenberger, in the actual Alamo, launched himself gracefully with honor and humility on the sward of ABAI to appease the practitioners of behavior analysis to no avail. It felt as though people were calling for his head and the head of all that sat at the top of the organization. I observed the following year when Pat Fryman resigned, abruptly only to those who knew not what was going on, for reasons I dubbed as to simply keep his sanity. Everything was falling apart. I felt like a young child watching as his parents were headed for divorce, confused and feeling unworthy. I then looked around and realized I was alone. At least it felt that way. Professionally, if I had to put a number to my feeling, 90% of all the behavior analysts were either in academia or practicing in the world of autism, developmental disability, intellectual disability, or traumatic brain injury. Don't crucify me if the turns have changed with the times, and I am unaware. I wanted nothing to do with any of these niches. I was an athlete, a sports coach, a fitness junkie, and loved to write with a flair, not becoming of a scientist. Yes, I got to see a talk by Gary Martin. Yes, I met wonderful people like Lorraine Winston and Teresa McKeon, who both run successful businesses and utilize behavior analysis in a manner which was intriguing based on my history of reinforcement. I shared lengthy conversations with Bill Heward about baseball, the Negro Leagues, and the Ohio State football team. These were great conversations, but not enough replication of results for a particular motto I could follow in my passion outside of our current niche. Thus, I was left to be an entrepreneur. And guess what? I didn't go to school and spend hundreds of thousands of dollars for that path. I didn't learn that skill set. This led to a longer professional struggle than was ever expected after I received the title of PhD. Furthermore, when I attended the conference, it felt as though nothing was meant for my path. There were little to no symposiums on anything of interest for me. I didn't hear anyone talking about the environments where I wanted to apply our beautiful science. In addition, if you didn't speak in technical jargon like a robot, you felt less than. I know the science well. I know the technical jargon like the back of my hand, but I'm also a person. I enjoy simply talking, using colloquialisms, and not concerning myself with the technicalities outside of an academic, professional, or experimental setting. I want to shoot the shit at the bar. If that ends up being a debate of theory and philosophy, then so be it. If not, please do not criticize any mentalistic viewpoint that comes out of my mouth while we are attempting to be friends. The three talks I remember most were from Scott Geller, Pat Fryman, and Chris Wilhite. Scott was amazing and his talk changed my title from behavior analyst to behavior scientist, allowing me to explain what it is I do to the general public in a more concise and inferred manner. Pat was remembered not for his content, but for his charismatic presentation and personality we have all grown accustomed to admiring. Chris's talk dealt with the history of the court gesture, traveling to the modern day comedian and their place in history from a behavioral perspective. No offense to anyone, but nothing else stands out. Still, my separation from the field goes deeper than that. As I walked around the conference, attended grad school, worked in the world of autism, and taught graduate school for the past decade, something glaringly obvious bothered me. No one looked like me, walked like me, or talked like me. As a black male, bald head, athletic build, fully invisibly tattooed, I felt alone. I came from a place very few knew of or ever experienced. I may be wrong, but my feeling was undeniable. I remember after walking across the stage receiving my award for service in the ABAI Executive Council, I was greeted by a young black man outside of the conference hall doors. 
He smiled graciously and simply stated, it felt really good to see you up there, to see another black man in this field doing big things. It made me proud and excited. I was like, it's one of us. Yes. This comment, though flattering, broke my heart. More of the same shit I knew growing up, just a different location in time. I know what you may be thinking. Yes, I am responsible for the falling out of our marriage as well. I did not blaze a trail and open my mouth to the disdain I was tasting. I presented my work only a few times and put an end to my research and dissemination. I stopped attending conferences. I didn't reach out to anyone and ask for help. Well, once, to Maria and Martha, but I never got a response, further fueling the flames of betrayal. I simply shut down and ran away. I did not communicate my needs, desires, or troubles. I spent most of my time at the conferences, engaged in the social activities, drinking, and trying to ensure no one saw who I went back to my room with that night because our field was so small and word travels fast. I disappeared. I did not do my part at all. However, I'm trying today, and as they say, better late than never, right? This letter is not a means of pointing fingers. It is a letter to my love, in hopes of reconciliation as I have been out in the cold long enough. I want to come home. I love my science. I believe we have so much potential to change the world, especially with the times we live in today. We can be effective behavior change agents in any industry. It's all behavior, right? Can it pass the dead man's test? Then why do we limit ourselves? I know we do great things within our niche. I know there are many individuals within those demographics who benefit greatly from our science and application of the science. I also know we won't ever have enough behavior scientists to help everyone unless we approach training and dissemination in a different manner, one on a mass consumption scale. I know many students and colleagues who all have passions outside of said niche and who would love to apply the science in those arenas, but understand there is no steady paycheck as the entrepreneur and are afraid as was I because we lack models outside of our niche. I may be too late. The field may have already addressed these issues I laid out or may be currently working on them. It may no longer care for me the way I care for it. Maria Malat once made me blush by saying she looks forward to seeing me as president of ABAI one day. Though that is a compliment I will cherish, at the moment, I just want to date my field again. I want to spend time with my field and rekindle the lust and intense love I once felt. This time though, it will be on different terms. I will not conform to be something I am not. I also will not ask you to change, but rather share more of myself in hopes we can blossom together as separate holes in one direction. Awkwardly, I won't be going to ABAI next week, for it's too expensive for me to afford at this time, especially so close to opening ceremonies. It's also probably a good thing. The response to this letter, my love, will let me know if it's time for me to move on or if we have one last shot at this marriage. I look forward to what comes next. If we are to move as one, I am excited at the possibilities and ready to work for it. If I am too late, I wish you nothing but the best and hope for great things in your future. And I will walk away with no regrets, having expressed my sorrows and love from the bottom of my heart with love. Sincerely, Dr. Antonio M. Harrison, BCBAD. Music